Hi, and welcome to Screening Room with Chet and Dee. I'm Chet. And I'm Dee. I'm a boomer. And I'm a millennial, and we both love classic movies. And we think you're going to love them, too, if you give them a shot. Which is where we come in. We're here to talk about those old movies. We'll tell you why we think they're so good and give you a little background about how they were made. And we'll also talk about what these movies can teach us about history, about people. And maybe even about the meaning of life. And that's why we want you to watch them. But before we get into today's pick, a little, you know... As usual, for the next few times that we do a podcast, there's just a little warning that we might have a little squirt uh, in the background. Miss L- uh, a L- L- <laughs> excuse me, um, Loretta. Some issues that you need yeah, to I think people about? have been complaining about our audio. Like, there's been some squeaking now. There might be some squirting, but um, yes, um, daughter Loretta uh, always has to be on my hip, so she may. There okay. might be pauses. Anyway, so, but, um, we came here to do another, uh, film noir. Yeah. Okay. So you might be like, we got a lot of mysteries in a row, but you know what? Well, it look, was on TCM. We, we, Oops. We, we, we said we were going to do a film noir a couple of episodes again. We said we wanted to do a film noir. So we did Laura and, and Laura's a great film. Great film. But I think we kind of cheated because. How did we cheat? I don't know how film noir Laura. Really is. It's not your it's not your stereotypical film noir. What is it's, a, it's a what is a film noir? What's the I definition? Mean, it, no, if you well, well film noir, it just means uh, noir just means dark or black. It's it's, it's 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 a film about darkness and it's it's specifically There was about, no darkness in Laura. <laughs> there was a little darkness in Laura, but but it's it's about the 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 darkness in the human soul. It's about bleakness it's about people wondering what if there is any purpose it's about cynicism and it's about um often about crime and and murder and that kind of stuff too and and if if you really want to get a great taste of what film noir is all about the movie we're talking about today it is the epitome of the film noir it and, is the and noiriest... this is not just coming from us this is from critics and it's almost 80 years old and survived and people say say that it's the film noir yeah, the best film noir of all time and it is from 1944 it's double indemnity double indemnity we don't own the rights to this music paramount picture does Okay, that's that's all we're gonna play of it, so we don't get sued. Um, <laughs> that was Nicholas Rosa's haunting score for Double Indemnity, which again, this is this has got to go. All it's got your femme fatale, it's got your first person narration by this guy who's made some terrible decisions and has come to regret them. It's got murder. It's got. Uh, investigator hot backstabbing um yeah it's got lust it's got passion it's got cruddy people Can I read? Uh, yeah uh so th- th- you gotta watch this film this is like if um if you never watch any other film noir if, if all you want to do is find out what is this film noir stuff all about watch double indemnity okay it's it is the epitome it is quite cool, if I do say so. So yeah, um, we should. All right, let, let's let's get into it. Who are some of the people we're going to be? Okay, so you're familiar with the director. Basically, this is a Billy Wilder podcast now. Because um, yeah, we did we, have some friends that sent us a picture that they needed to watch the apartment, and then I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, yeah, Billy Wilder directed this movie. Oh, yeah. he also directed Sunset Boulevard. Bol- we did Sunset oh, Boulevard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, Billy Wilder is kind of a favorite, you know. Yes. It's, um... Um, and then let's see, we got. Um, so oh, he also uh, wrote the screenplay. Yeah, co-wrote um, the screenplay with uh, Raymond Chandler. And Raymond Chandler, by the way, uh, a, a crime novelist in his own right, who wrote uh, *The Big Sleep*. Oh. He wrote actually the story to the *The Big oh, Sleep*. I didn't realize that. Uh, okay. And I think he wrote the screenplay too. Don't don't quote me on that, but I think he I, I think he did. Um, so. Two guys that we love. And it's and then, another movie that's based off of a book. Yeah, based off of a book uh, by James Kane, uh, who also wrote, um, we're not going to do this one, the, the, the Postman Always Rings Twice, another, well, fabulous film noir. Not, I, I'm not quite as good as this one, but oh my God. And then he excellent. also, excellent, he also did Mildred Pierce, which is the mother of a daughter. I not, I've watched the movie, but now I have a daughter, I'm like, no. Yeah, no. probably don't want to watch. <laughs> don't want to watch again. it. <laughs> don't want to watch that one again. Um, let's see, and then starring. Um, we're gonna go with. Uh, I'm gonna start with. You have Frederick Murray listed here, and you don't even have Barbara Stanwyck first. So I'm gonna. Well, that's the way they credited. In yeah, the movie, but, th- but that's then. This is now. So but, Barbara but... Stanwyck. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Well, what do she's we know about the Barbara Stanwyck. We know that. Uh, she is Phyllis uh, Dietrichson, blonde, bimbo. Um, you go to the you go to the hair, a... you go to the barber. Yeah, you don't say barber, right? But that's what can because Barbara. Sorry, she also has an extra A. I could do that yeah. joke as a Barbara Streisand fan. Yeah. Okay, you go to your hairstylist and you say, "I want the Phyllis Phyllis Dietrichson haircut." Oh, really? Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so you're going to notice, like, her, her blonde wig, because Barbara Stanwyck is a brunette, okay? Uh-huh. But you, as a femme fatale, femme fatales are famous for being blonde bimbos, so uh-huh. um, I'm still waiting to get cast as one. Um, yeah. Like, somebody seeing me on a street and saying, I want to cast her. Somebody um, seeing you on the street thinking you look like a bimbo. Yes, because now I have nursing, you. Okay. Uh, you know, okay. that going on. Okay. Um, but, we you know, just wait. Goals. So you guys Something heard it first that that's my goal. Okay. Um, uh, but it, let's see. So we haven't talked about any of her movies no, before. No, we haven't done one um, This is, yet. let's see, we watched it on t- uh, Turner Classic Movies, and they always have a, an intro. Ben Manquitz did a good intro, and he said this was her. By the way, we should tell people, the reason we're doing this one right now, one of the reasons oh, is yeah. it was just yeah. on, and it's we're doing this the month of September uh, 2022, and it uh, Turner Classic m- Movies has it on demand right now. Right so now, this is one of these movies you could just bada bing, bada boom. Yes, because we've been waiting because it was only available to rent on YouTube for like three bucks. Which still, if you don't have Turner Classic Movies or yeah. Sling or Hulu or whatever, wherever you get your streaming services, rent it. Yeah, but... you're gonna want to watch this one, even if you listen to this podcast first. You're yes. still gonna want to watch. It. Okay, well. So her first movie was in 1927, but then in 1948, so four years after this movie, she does Sorry, Wrong Number um, with Burt Lancaster. She does a fantastic job in oh, that movie. Oh, great. That's um, a fantastic film. Babyface, yeah. 1933, so that's like a very seductive role where Free she sleeps code. her way yeah. sleeps to, her the way to the top. Uh, remember the Night, uh, 1940, four years before this movie, and she starred in that with Fred McMurray. That was fun. We watched that for the first time this year because people yeah. recommended that it's highly. You should definitely watch that movie. Yeah. You get a little teary, you yeah. know. Uh-huh. Um, Christmas in Connecticut, nineteen forty-five. Another 
Christmas rom com. Yes, they were doing them. She all carries back that then. movie. She carries that movie. Oh um, yeah. And then because yeah. her lead, no, I don't even know the guy. He's not rememberable other than that I don't like him. I think it's Dennis. Boyd. No offense to him. Yeah. He's a nice man, <laughs> but. Um, the Big Valley, 1965 to 69. We're trying to get my sister to watch that because she loves Dynasty. Yes. Um, and Linda Evans, Linda Evans is that. that but, but yeah, this is actually, as a child, the first time I remember ever seeing Barbara Stanwyck was in The Big Valley, which was on syndication. Watched in the afternoon. I was uh, always disappointed in The Big Valley because it looked like a Western. <laughs> Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of action to it. It was kind of like a Western soap opera, whatever. It was trying to, you know, hit all the demographic uh, niches, and it missed mine, the little kid who wanted to watch, you know, gunfights. But anyway, Barbara Stanwyck was really good in this. She was this, this, this really lovely, she was about 60 years old at the time that that uh, series was going on, had just pure white hair, uh, and had it, permed up and she just had this smoky voice yeah spoken for years by that point so she she just had this very elegant sophisticated uh nature to her as the matriarch of this family that that owns a ranch so anyway that was she owned a ranch in real life she did although she was a girl from brooklyn brooklyn yeah originally a tough girl from brooklyn so that's what they attribute her um cadence and speech to Okay. Growing up in Brooklyn. Yeah, but Barbara Stanwyck could do anything. Really I mean, could. she did like it's dozens and dozens, if not uh, hundreds of of films and TV shows. And, and she's another one of those where it's like, what? She never won. No, never won an, uh, an Academy Award. She uh-huh. did a great job in this movie. She lost to um, Ingrid uh, Bergman from oh, Gaslight. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, so, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can get that, but still. Uh, just tremendous range. She could do uh, she could do suspense, she could do comedy, she could do romance, what have you. And, and one of the things that is, we'll talk about this more as we go on, but you said she's the femme fatale in this, and yeah, they put her in this, like the, the only weakness of this whole movie is the blonde wig. Um, and even Billy Wilder and some of the other people that were working on the movie, it's like they got halfway through the movie and they, they, after looking at this wig for a few days, they, yeah, this, that's an ugly wig. Well, you know what though? The first time I, first few times I watched it, I never have been distracted by it until I read about people talking about it though. So I'm not sure, like for me, it didn't really bother me until people were talking about it and I was paying attention yeah. to it, I guess. So we should never I mean, have mentioned she, it because... Yeah, because <laughs> now that's what you're going to focus on. Because, I mean, you pay attention to Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. Well, and th- they want to, to make a statement. Okay, Barbara... Well, let's go ahead and say something about ph- the character. Phyllis is the wife of this incredibly cruddy, caustic, uh, middle-aged man. Yeah, if you want to see who you should not marry... Um, ladies and gentlemen, this yeah. could be this guy. I mean, you see this guy on screen, her husband, for a little while, and you think, God, I want to kill that guy. And <laughs> <laughs> guess what? So does she. Um, so, and, but anyway, she is, uh, and one of the things that's so great about Barbara Stanwyck is she is not just drop-dead gorgeous. Not even close. Mm-mm. She is, I mean, she she's attractive, but... So much of her appeal is just her how she person- carries herself and her voice. Her voice, her confidence, uh, 
And yeah, they, they put her in this blonde wig and they have her wearing a, a famously an anklet uh, at the very beginning when she meets Fred McMurray. Uh, and everybody knows who Fred McMurray we is. We talked he, about him in the apartment. You'll recognize him from that, which was like many years episodes later. ago. But yeah. he was fantastic in that. But uh, I remembered him first, again, from 1960s television in My Three Sons, where he was the father and he was like, you know, everybody's, you know, happy go lucky. Uh, dad, and then also uh, by that time uh, he was doing Disney movie. He did the uh, original uh, Absent-Minded Professor, which introduced us to Flubber. Uh, so he's doing these family-oriented comedies. In fact, Fred McMurray had started making movies in the 1930s, and he was mostly cast just as these kind of ordinary, likable guys. He's a Midwesterner, and everybody who knew him said he was he really was just kind of a nice guy kind of lighthearted. he had a good flair for comedy and this was one of his first roles that was really really dark and he just nails it he's fantastic in this movie he's this is maybe the best performance you'll ever see but he is great in the apartment as kind of the um the boss that you can't stand uh who's a real jerk and he's great in the cane mutiny where he is also a jerk uh, the writer who, um, after the mutiny happens, uh, kind of disappears into the woodwork and leaves everybody else holding the bag. So when they got Fred McMurray to play a guy who was not a nice guy, God, he just really turned it on. And he does it in this in this movie to, to a hilt. It definitely makes you, as like a, a person from the Midwest, mm-hmm. which he was also from the Midwest, makes you feel like, yeah, I, I want to play roles like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and since we're talking about the cast, we should go ahead and talk about... Well, the... I'll talk about uh, Edward G. Robinson. Yeah. Oh. Okay, he plays Barton Keys, so he's the persistent, or not persistent, but... Um... Yeah, so you got three megastars in this, and Edward G. Robinson... We haven't talked about him before. But... Uh, another guy who did, like, a bazillion films. But he was the opposite of... He played would play, like, mobsters, and he was, I guess, in real life, the opposite of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A very intelligent, sophisticated guy... Uh, yeah, he, he played Little Caesar uh, in 1931 as a mobster, and he was like everybody's film mobster after that was basically modeled after that. And then he does pretty much the same thing in Key Largo, uh, another one of our favorites with yes, Bogart and yeah. Bacall. He is the mobster that comes down to Key Largo. Just fantastic in that. He's a, a little bitty guy, but he can be so sinister like, and so overbearing um, he's a fast he's really great with his line dialogue like barbara stanwick and ed uh g edward g robinson are like a class act and or a class a master class for delivering lines oh yeah and, well, and the dialogue is fantastic I mean, yeah but you film. can have yeah. great dialogue and have it to where like i would butcher it i keep on butchering what i'm saying during this podcast yeah but they we, just yeah. master class yeah uh, and Edward G. Robinson, he is certainly not a gangster in this one. Again, mm. completely different character. He is playing an insurance investigator. We should mention, okay, Walter Neff is an insurance salesman. And uh, Edward G. Robinson is not his uh, boss, but he works in a different department. Edward G. Robinson is in the investigative area. So he's the guy who, when the claims come in, if he smells something fishy, 
he's the one that investigates to see whether or not there's any way they can get out of playing, paying this claim. Okay, so Neff at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, here let's give a little bit brief synopsis yeah. here. Uh, he, he's checking in on this this uh, this household uh, where the uh, car insurance has left. So he stops in and uh, the horses his way in. Yeah, the husband isn't home. Uh, he's never met these people before. He just sees, you know, they're just on the list. The husband isn't home, and uh, but he talks his way in the door, and there, and there at the top of the stairs, wearing nothing but a towel, is Phyllis. Okay, for a sec, I, I need to talk about this for a second. Yeah. Um. There's like no way you could pay me a set of money to be able to do that. To do what? To be able to. I mean. For some reason, I think I'd be able to do it if I had been just gotten out of the swimming pool, you know, and I'm wearing a towel. Well, she was sunbathing. Yeah, but she said like, that. yeah, nude probably or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, just the confidence of her at the top of Barbara Stanwyck at the top of the stairs in a towel. I don't know why, but it's like, mm-mm. So, no, as complete strangers in your home, and you're an alpha. She's an alpha immediately. Your goal is to be a blonde bimbo in the film, but you would never do a scene in a towel okay well i didn't say i would never do it i just wouldn't be able to be as confident as she okay. is yeah. i'd be keep on adjusting the towel twiddle yeah. some things anyway the so, towel might fall by accident because i'd be so nervous but anyway yes but, yeah. great scene I've, everybody that like shares this movie or talks about it like that's the movie the yeah. scene they reference because it's, it's like oh so scandalous for that time you know yeah so and, and again, this is 1944. Even though it's code, yeah. So I mean, this is, yeah, this is after the censorship. And in fact, if you watch the TCM version and you see uh, Ben Manquitz's introduction, yeah. one of the things that he points out is after this was written, people were thinking there was no way in the world that they would ever be able to make a movie <laughs> out of it because of the censorship. There's just too much going on here. But they were able to make it clear what's happening without showing enough, without making it explicit enough that they got away with it. And um, that's one of the reasons that it, it works so well. They were right on the border with everything in this movie. Beginning with, yeah, that first scene, he meets her. Uh, they have all this, this sultry double entendre going back and forth immediately, even though he knows that this is the wife of, one of his prospective clients, he's hitting on her like two seconds after he sees her and she is subtly encouraging him without admitting that she's encouraging him. And so this is where it all begins. They want some insurance and then she said, oh, you're an insurance guy. And it turns out her husband works in the oil fields and she says, you know, wouldn't it be good for him to have accident insurance? And he says, well, yeah, yeah, that'd be a good idea. You know, I just worry about him, you know, because uh, something dangerous could happen. And then is there any way I could get a policy on him? And he doesn't know that I have a policy okay, on him. Okay, this is where Fred McMurray is really good in his acting because yeah. at first he's like, um, hey, let's get it on. And then right when she does that, he's like, gets lo get lost. But he like, it's not to where it doesn't take long for him to be able to switch those gears. Yeah. Um, oh, and we great should acting there. We should mention this is actually a flashback at the, the very beginning of the movie. Uh, he is coming in and uh, he is confessing. Yes, you to, find out at the beginning of the movie what's happening. Yeah, that he is part of a, a crime, part of a so murder. So we're not giving anything away. Yeah. Uh, and he's, this is how it all started. This is how I met this woman. And this is where I got it. And he says in his voiceover narration, which is just fantastic, carries this 
this this plot along the narration it's so it's again it's classic film noir it's describing the action it's got it's gritty it's realistic and it's poetic as hell just all these uh, you know, I didn't know that murder could smell like honeysuckle, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, lots is in of there. things where you just yeah. pull it for quotes. So he figures out when she asks about this insurance policy, it's like you can just see on his face the bell has gone off. It's like, uh oh, this something is, and he gets the heck out of there. But then, as he says in his narration, he, he, he was really hooked already. And he just can't let it go. And then she looks him up in the phone book, comes to his apartment. On a rainy night. The same night. And yeah, it, then they hatch the plan. They're going to kill this guy. He's going to get him to sign an insurance policy. He's not going to know that he's signing an insurance policy. And then the smart uh, insurance guy, Walter Neff, says, and it's going to have a double indemnity clause in there that says... And what's an double indemnity? It's going to pay out double if he dies in an accident on a train. And so... Isn't that people only travel by trains back then, didn't they? Uh, lots of train... Well, I, yeah, there was a, some airplane travel, but there lots and lots and lots of train travel. But anyway, it's still rare enough that you're going to die on a train. You hear that, but, Mom? It's rare enough that you're going to die on a train. Yeah, speaking to our train traveling audience members out there. Okay, so then they hit, hit uh, this murder plot. They're going to kill the husband. Then they're going to fake it so that Walter Neff is going to pose as the husband getting on the train. And then he's going to... Uh, jump off the train and then they're going to put the dead body on the train tracks so it looks like he fell off the train and died that way and then they're going to collect the insurance comp the the money from the insurance company and then they're going to go off together and live happily ever after uh and of course it doesn't uh, yes but but when the act of like okay when it's like okay he's uh he's gonna go on okay He's not going to go on his trip because he broke his ankle or his leg. But then it's like, oh, wait, no, he is going to go. The doctor cleared him. He has to take the train. Oh, and then everything's going to work out. And then they actually do kill him successfully. And then it's looking good. Like, in movies, like, say, um, Horrible Bosses too, like, where they're, uh -huh. like, plotting. They're, like, talking about their plan. And it sounds like it's all going to work out perfectly. Uh -huh. And then nothing goes to plan. Yeah. This is to where the act of what they, like, committing, which... Okay, maybe it's easy for them to commit. But the police, it is successful because mm -hmm. the police chalk it up to an accident. Yeah. Well, so it is a successful yeah. murder. This is one of the things that makes the movie so great. So it's not that, to where things unravel to where, yeah. even though there was the guy on the back of the the um, observance car. Yeah. That kind of like, oh, I didn't want somebody out here. But nope, still was able to, actually this helps to where somebody saw me back here. Yeah. So what, part of what makes this movie so brilliant is that the the murder is so clever. So you're amazed and you're really impressed by the, by the fact that they cook up such a, a smart murder plot. But at the same time, little things start going wrong. It's like, oh, it's got to happen on a train. It's like, oh, he never rides a train. But oh, now it turns out he is going to ride the train. But then he finds out on the day that he's getting on the train it's like oh now it's on and so they have to throw it all together really really quickly and oh he takes that phone call while he's in the office with key standing right beside him so he's got to confirm the details of this murder plot while keys the insurance investigator is you know two feet away from him so and then all kinds of little things start to go wrong like 
they carry off the murder and then uh they're going to get away and then the car doesn't start i mean it's just yeah that was so good and that was only added i saw i don't remember what to reference either tcm or imdb um that uh wilder got the idea like on set because his car didn't start oh okay anyway but like beautiful yeah and then we're so gonna have a scene suspense. later on where it looks like it's all clear and then uh phyllis comes over to the apartment and it's like ah yeah this is and you think they're 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 in the clear and while she's on her way over keys calls up and says you know i'm really bothered bothered about oh this gosh. case it doesn't just doesn't make sense and then he shows up and so he knows that keys is coming and he knows that phyllis is coming like right behind him and it's like oh what am i gonna do i gotta have both these people in my showing up in my apartment at the same time yeah you feel like the actors can hear your heartbeat while you're watching the movie again so the- this is a great movie there aren't many movies that make it to where your heart beats fast because of their sexual tension and also because are they going to get caught? Yeah. And oh my gosh, this is going wrong. Oh my gosh, wait, no, they did it. Okay, wait. <laughs> and this is a little different than we talked. I think in like the last episode when we were talking about Hitchcock, about how many films of, of Hitchcock's he deals with guilt, where he gets you to empathize with people doing terrible things, and then you're burdened by all of this guilt. This is a little different in that it's it's incredibly suspenseful, but you. I don't know if you empathize with these killers or not. I mean, you recognize them as pretty cruddy people right off the bat. I mean, yeah, because I don't feel bad when... Um, I, I can't say it because that will spoil it. So, a spoiler, uh, is just skip over the next, like, 30 seconds. But, like, you know, when people... Mm, when people... Die. People... people you don't die. feel bad about it. Yeah. Like, you're not like, oh, I'm so heartbroken over it. Yeah. Uh, lots of people are going to die. Main characters are going to die in this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you don't... It's not like so much like... Even though Walter Neff is the main character and Fred McMurray is ordinarily this really likable guy and you can see he's got some good qualities and you... He's narrating, so he's got you to buy into, you know, going along for the ride with him. At the same time, you never are like, um, I want him to get away with it because... This is a pretty heinous thing that they're doing. Even though the husband that they kill is so murderable, um, it's still it's still very very wrong. And and they, it you never get this pretense of, of, yeah, I want them to get away with it. I I want to you know experience their guilt along with them. It's just suspenseful. Are they going to get caught or are they not going to get caught? And there isn't you know, more than two minutes that go by in this whole film where there isn't some kind of little twist of the knife in there that, that has you wondering, gee, what's going to happen next? Is Are they going to get away with it? Is this how they're going to get caught or whatever? Because you know at the beginning that they're going to get caught. So it's even after that, it's just a matter of when are they going to get caught? How are they going to get caught? Who's the person who's going to catch them? And how bad is it going to be when they do get caught? So... Um, so many things just going on in this that that make it so great. We t- we talked about um, the performances, and I think Barbara Stanwyck was nominated. Um, okay, was she the only one? I don't because... know if Robinson also was also, but I don't think McMurray was. Okay, uh, these three performances 
Like, I don't yeah, know that small you could... cast. Another small cast. Like, Vertigo was small. Laura was small. This one's small. Yeah. That's the power. I mean, that's the beauty of a noir or a mystery is uh, they don't need big casts. Yeah. And I don't think you could have gotten three actors to do anything better oh, or more. Oh, no. With... There was, like, I think... Was it, uh... Which Powell? Not because I Thin Man. I love him. William is that William Powell? Yeah. Oh wait, maybe it was William Powell. No, William Powell wouldn't have wanted to do this role. One of the Powells, but the what Powell I'm thinking of is it Dick Powell? Okay. He wanted this role, I think. I yeah. just like no. Yeah. He wanted. Uh, uh, sorry, he wanted um, Walter's role. Well, and this is Edward G. Robinson's performance is like he practically steals every scene that he's in. <laughs> But it's kind of, it's kind of written for that too. And this was one of the first roles that he took where he was not one of the leads. Are you having some problems? She's there? wanting to say as a supporting character. Yeah. <laughs> she's got something to say about the importance of. It's not just about the leads. Okay. Okay. She's the Robinson in our situation. That's a good point. Okay. Um, anyway, you're gonna enjoy. All of these performances, they're just like master classes in, in, in how to do this. And as we said, the dialogue in this is so fantastic. The repartee between the two characters, the double entendre is so great. The narration is so great. Edward G. Robinson's uh, monologues that he goes off on when he talks about the little man inside him and how he can always mm -hmm. tell when there's yeah. something yep. wrong. Yeah, you imagine like a... Uh... Just a little man with suspenders. Does he even have suspenders? For some reason, I'm picturing him with suspenders. I don't know but if he's got it's just he like I don't think so. He's got a vest. But he's... he just like yeah, he like grabs he, just what he grabs onto. Um, I mean, th that's acting. That's mm -hmm. you don't even think about it. But like, would you be? I mean, that's a great touch. Yeah, and he's such a. It adds something to the character. He is such a little guy too. I, he looks like he might be, I don't, I don't know what his actual height is, but he looks like you could pick him up and carry him home with you. Uh, but he is larger than life in his performances, everything he does. He is loud, he talks fast, his gestures, everything about it, just overpowering. And part of what really I think we're getting out of this too is, he is just passionate about his job. He is in love with finding people who are trying to cheat the insurance company. It is his passion. It is his obsession. It almost obsession. makes you want to work for insurance companies. Almost does make you want to work for an insurance company. Um, but this singular-minded focus, and he, you can, he's got no social life out of this. He's something of a workaholic, but he's not a miserable workaholic. He just walks around thinking about these cases all the time. It is his purpose in life. Yeah, he's not married, He's so he's not to where he's got a miserable wife at home who might be plotting to kill him because he... Right, well, and as he points out... He doesn't make uh, any money. He almost got married once. Yep. But, but uh, of course... He investigated her. He investigated her <laughs> and decided he didn't want to marry her after he learned everything <laughs> about her in the past. Probably marriage material with his singular... Uh, yeah, he would probably be a pretty miserable person to yeah. uh, live with because all he would talk about would be his insurance cap cases. But I think when we talk about, you know, like what, what's the big picture here? What are we supposed to get out of this? I think uh, a lot renew of Renew your insurance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but don't let the salesman come in the house. Yeah, I was going to say, don't yeah. do it so the insurance man doesn't come over. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Also, just... insurancemen maybe. Um, when you got, you know, to where you have, what was it to where the day that they were going to commit the, or he was going to see her the second time, so where they haven't even plotted anything. He's like, I had these, like, five other things to do, but she changed the appointment to see her at 3.30, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But I think p- people talk about, you know, why did film noirs become so popular? And Why did get, they become so popular? Well, I have, you know, yeah, ideas about that. This is... It's 1944. It's right after World War II. And I think part of it is just World War II and the Depression before that just really did a number on people. Um, You had a lot of people walking around with uh, lots of pain and lots of darkness and lots of questions about why these terrible things happen. Everybody who's gone through the war, they've known somebody probably who died or they had to go fight in the war and kill other people or they had to flee uh, Europe to escape the Nazis that would be Billy Wilder's case Um, and I think a lot of these people they they come to the United States and it's like okay this is this is it's over we're safe now but I think there there comes this time where people are saying but is this all there is what are we supposed to do now? We we were dealing with these life and death, death situations all the time, and now we're just supposed to put on a suit and tie or have babies and move to the suburbs or whatever. Is that all there is to it? Like, That's all there is to it, kid. So I think a lot of these, a lot of folks are just, just unhappy, wondering, they're restless. And in, in this case... I think the question is, you know, how do you find meaning and satisfaction in your life? Is there anything? And Walter Neff can't find it. He's got, he's 35 years old. He's good looking. He's single. He's got a pretty steady job that probably pays him pretty well. But he's just, he's not happy with it. He's got opportunities to move up in the company. Keyes wants him to be his assistant. But he doesn't want it. What he wants is just some kind of visceral excitement he he's just he's bored with it all apparently and so he meets this uh floozy and just just like that he decides okay i guess i'll get involved in a murder plot and just to make a whole bunch of money off of it what how that's going to make him happy clearly he hasn't worked that out either but he's just going to go for it phyllis is yeah what's phyllis's she's not just a bored housewife well, and that's, it's interesting, too. The story is written by men, it's directed by men. Almost everybody involved in the production, except for the actresses, are women. And But I, hold on, hold yeah. on. This is, just to give Billy Wilder some more. This man uh, was not born in America. He, as you mentioned, he came from Germany uh, during the Nazi. Yeah. And... Um, Sorry, our daughter turned on the piano. But uh, he didn't learn English, like, he, 10 years before this. That oh, he yeah. This He's writing these brilliant screenplays in English. He's only been speaking the language for 10 years or whatever. Yeah. But, no. So, I think these 
these people writing these crime novels and the people writing these screenplays for these film noirs, almost all of them are men. And they, one of the conventions of the film noir is that you have to have a femme fatale. You have to have this dangerous woman who is going to drag you down. She's going to seduce you and she's going to get you to do something terrible that you're going to regret. And I think the men who write these, I don't know that they think all that deeply about these women. They just want a woman to fit that role. But when you actually put it on the screen and you get a brilliant actress Barbara like Stanwyck, yeah. Barbara Stanwyck to play this character, then there are more possibilities to this that come to life. Yeah, so this was in 1944, but it's set in 1938, so there aren't any references to the war. But we were talking behind, behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, it's like, what were the women who were watching this movie who were had just or starting to help with the war efforts or told not to go back to work and stuff like that like what were they thinking yeah well, during this you, movie do seen, they see phyllis just as a femme fatale or is there some characteristics her gonna bring home with them yeah not, not the murder thing nor the seducing uh part but it's not just her looks i mean like you said phyllis uh barbara stanick isn't just gorgeous so it's not her looks that are seducing it's yeah and you, you get the sense and there's more to her, even though she makes, even though she wears this costume jewelry and the wig and the anklet, and she talks about shopping. Hey, doesn't let me go out and buy, you know, clothes and shoes and all that kind of stuff. And they bicker back and forth about, you know, how much money she spends and all that kind of stuff. Again, I think it's written by the men as she really, she's just a bimbo. She's just a bimbo, and she's just completely materialistic, and she, she married this guy for his money, and then she got bored with him, and she figured out he's a jerk, and now she just wants to kill him. And I think from the author's standpoint, that's all you need. But I think Barbara Stanwyck gets you thinking about the possibility that this is... This is a strong, intelligent woman yes. who could have done a whole lot more with her life, and the war is over... The men have all come back, and all she can be is a housewife, and that really is not enough. And instead of having something wonderful to do with her life, all she can think about is how much she hates her husband and how much she wants to be out of this, this system that says the only way you can get anywhere is to marry a rich guy. Well, why, why don't I use my intelligence, marry this rich guy, and kill him and get his money and not have to put up with the, the, the rich jerk that I don't like? Um, so anyway, I think there is, there's a statement in there about what women are going through at this time that maybe even the authors didn't even intend to have there. Yeah, because when you asked me what, um, I thought of Phyllis, it's like, I kind of, I don't like her, but there are things about her that I wish I had more attributes of. Such uh, as? Like her confidence, how she mm -hmm. carries herself, how she, um, and then as a, um, Okay. Yeah, I would like to be able to deliver lines. You know, if I were ever cast in that bimbo role, I'd uh -huh. like to be able to deliver lines with her cadence, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and even I mean, as... Yeah, just, again, how she carries herself, um, she doesn't uh, stumble over anything. Except for she does stumble a little bit on the stairs at one of the times when she's running down to open the door for, for Walter, but... Yeah. Well, and she's so stinking smart. She is very too. smart. Because she, yeah, anytime there's anybody questioning her, she keeps herself composed, or she, she is she's like a chameleon to fit whatever needs 
to meet the moment. Yeah, we should mention there is this one really, really good scene where uh, it's after they, they, they've committed the murder um, and it looks like it's all going to go through. Uh, Neff thinks he's in the clear and Keyes doesn't have any opinion. Does, you know, he, he hasn't even started worrying about the case yet. But the guy who's their boss, who would be stand to lose money if they paid out this claim, he's decided that there's something suspicious about it just because they're going to have to pay out a whole bunch of money. So he calls in Phyllis and he also tells Walter and uh, Keys to come in to watch this. I want you to see how I handle this. And we can tell right off the bat that this guy is a jerk. This guy is, he's wearing the suit and he's complaining that Keys doesn't wear his jacket when he comes into the office. He's somebody who's, he's invested in the company. He's the big boss. And he knows that these guys don't like him. And he says, you know, there's an impression right here, just because you have a big office, you don't know anything. And, which is exactly what we should think, okay? He's got money and he's got power, but he's a dweeb. He doesn't know what's going on. He calls Phyllis in and he's going to accuse her of doing something. He's figured out. He thinks it's a suicide. He thinks it's a planned suicide. And Phyllis just handles it yeah. so beautifully. She's got her veil on and she's like, I didn't even know he had an insurance policy. You, I didn't know I was supposed to get any money. And now you tell me that I was supposed to get money. And now you're telling me you're not going to get money. I just think you're a terrible person. I don't like the way you've handled it. And I don't like you. And she storms out of the office and the guy is just like, oh, yeah. Up, well, up. so then that's something that a lot of women that are watching, it'd be great for them. I mean, we still have trouble with that today, right? Of women... Yeah. Um, if somebody talks down to them or is pit, yeah, condescending or. Um, yeah. Well, and she doesn't great... do it. She she does it in a feminine way. Yeah. What's acceptable in 1944 is a feminine way to handle the situation, where she acts like she's upset, but the comments that she gets out before she runs out of the room, mm -hmm. so upset, make it clear that she has figured out where he's going with this. She has completely undermined his arguments, cut his legs out from underneath him, and just made him look like a fool. Yes, yeah, so if you want to um, channel some of Phyllis, this is where it'd be to where you're not at home, like, hours later in the shower thinking about what you would have said and then coming out, like, with George Costanza, where it's like, oh, yeah, the jerk <laughs> store called. They're running out of jerks. Yeah. You know? No, she yeah. does it right in the moment. She does yeah, yeah. You she's can brilliant. Go at home and say, yeah. Yeah, and we actually play. find out later she's even smarter because even the Walter Walter Neff thinks he's pretty damn smart because he plotted out the whole murder. What he doesn't realize is she's got another boyfriend on the side, and she's going to turn the tables on him in the end. So she's even smarter than Walter Neff is, but she doesn't let on. Again, she plays the role. She just plays the seductress as if that's all there is to her. And no, she's, she's thinking three steps ahead of everybody in this whole film. It's also But he's like hanging out with Lola and I think he starts hanging out with Lola. Lola is she's the, not as, her stepdaughter. Yeah, yeah, I think he kinda she's just not as he knows he's a little bit smarter than Lola. Yeah. She's the sweet, innocent yeah. kid. Yeah. Or at least seems to be. I'm not saying sweet. she doesn't have isn't capable of being like um uh like Phyllis, but I mean she does she's put up with Nino. Sure. She puts up with Nino and he's clearly a jerk. Um, yeah, so, so Nino is the boyfriend. Nino is the Sacchetti, is the boyfriend to Lola. And they're, they seem like they're minor characters, but they become more important as time goes on because Lola 
tells us later on that, oh yeah, Phyllis was actually my mother's nurse and my mother died under mysterious circumstances and then my father married her. And so she thinks maybe she had something to do with her mother's death. In fact, she's pretty darn sure that she had something to do with her mother's death. And then Nina, uh, Nino is the boyfriend and it turns out that Phyllis is two-time in it, both Neff and her stepdaughter with Nino, the boyfriend. So she's got that going on on the side. And then they're going to tr both try to pin the murder on Nino, but that's not going to work out. In the, okay, we, we, we're not going to have time to go into all of that, but there's all of that going on too. The other thing about that scene in the office is I think we see three alternatives for how you can live your life. You can be like Keys, and you can be so singularly focused on your life, uh, on your profession, on your job. And that's one way to be happy. But Keys has no social life. He has no life outside of his work. He is, he is just obsessed with that. And for him, it works. For him, he has found happiness just in being the best he can possibly be at this. And he also buys into the whole idea that he's catching bad people doing bad things and he's making the world a better place. But that's too narrow of a path for Walter. But the other alternative he sees is the boss, who is just a tool. Doesn't want to be like him. All he cares about is money. All he cares about is having a bigger office and a nicer suit and all of that. And Walter doesn't want any of that. And so for Walter, it's like there's nothing in between. So I'm going to go look for thrills where I can find them. And the best thing I can do, I can be like, try to outsmart Keys and show how intelligent I am and how I can work the system by plotting this murder. And I can get the money like this other guy had. I'm going to get more money even than he had. By doing it this way, I'm going to take this shortcut and it's not going to work for him. So you got three opportunities there. None of them really seem all that attractive mm. if you're the viewer of the film noir. And I think that's one of the lessons you're supposed to get out of. A good film noir is supposed to make you feel slightly hopeless about life, the world, our situation, and, and what we can do in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's... So if you're looking if for you're like... a, an incredibly entertaining movie... Uplifting. ...that's going to make you feel hopeless and uh, wonder if there's any purpose in life and maybe think that the best you could do would be to plot a really good murder, then I would highly recommend this film. I suppose I don't recommend this film. Well, then... No, you're supposed to say suppose. Supposing... No, oh, not supposing. Suppose. <laughs> supposing. Supposing. No. Darn it. Well, there's... See, that's another... Okay, what I like about this movie is... Shut up, not baby. Just... <laughs> That's, I remember that line that's from a good the movie. Line, yeah. Shut up, baby. And then he kisses her. Yes. Yeah. That's a great line. Um, it's not just, okay, for people who have not seen this movie, it is a great, it hooks you with all the suspense. And then you also feel betrayed as a viewer. Because even though it's all messed up, you're kind of like, you're kind of buying into Phyllis. Not to where you empathize with her, but you're kind of like going with the story. But then when you find out about that she was the nurse, mm -hmm. you're like, no, yeah. no, no. You, you kind of doubt it a little bit. You're like, yeah. You're kind of like with Walter's face where it's like, oh, oh crap. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. 
Didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she, my, my, my lady's a little crazy. Got yeah. It. Um, but, so, I mean, that's fun. But also, like, seeing um, what life... I mean, okay. Even though it's set in 1938, I mean, the stoplights would have been the same. Yeah, all the yes. little stoplights with the little, yes. little flags that cool say stop that. or go come yeah. up out um, of the seeing, side. Just seeing, mm-hmm. um, like with all these movies, just kind of what life was like then, visually. Okay? Yeah. And the, the black and white is beautiful. Um, but, yeah. And then also you want to, you'll want to dictaphone. a phone. Oh, yeah, the little, the machine that they talk into that makes That he the, records the, the, yeah. the, as mm-hmm. the narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots of cool stuff like that. Yeah, and in the film noir, I mean, hey, we can see lots of uh, movie and television shows and all that kind of stuff that get incredibly bleak. That there's, we've never lost our ability to make bleak, angst-ridden content. But there is something about the film noir. This style with the narration and the incredibly poetic language and the tough talk and the sharp dialogue. And yes, well, that's stuff. okay. That was what I was gonna. Sorry, I lost my train of thought at the very end there, but like with the whole suppose line. It's yeah. like, suppose I do, and then he goes, suppose I blah, 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 suppose I, and then they go back and forth. That's great. Mm-hmm. You don't do that anymore today. And then maybe I, maybe I oughtn't, and then maybe, you know, just. That's something that people don't say today, but it's great dialogue for this movie. Yeah. Well, and one uh, so thing, anyway, that's what I like seeing these movies for. Is, yeah. And a contemporary audience, you might look at this and say, uh, you know, is this completely realistic? Well, first of all, most of the stuff that's on today isn't realistic either, but because it's part of this era and everybody's doing it and we get wrapped up in it, we tell ourselves that it is believable. But this isn't meant to be super realistic in the sense that this is actually the way it might happen. I mean, this is much more poetic. There are a couple things that they do, including spending like three hours narrating a confession before you decide to make your getaway that don't make any sense at all. But it gives you an opportunity to hear this incredible dialogue and this incredible narration. There is this poetic quality to these film noirs that well, you that's that was just a part of this era and you know what's kind of like poetic for fred mcmurray is that he was playing this wholesome guy and there was to where um he was kind of before this move this role to where he didn't feel like he had to like work very hard in yeah. his roles and so he didn't want to take this role not just because he was worried about what his audience who was like oh he's a wholesome father fig- like mm-hmm. man figure um you know, how will they take this? It was also like, I haven't been challenged before. I don't think I could do it. And so then it's kind of like the Walter character where he's probably a little bored or not a little bored, but he hasn't had to work very hard. Like he's a, he's an easy talking salesman who hasn't had to do much that's challenged him. And then he has something that's exciting and challenges him. And here it's not, he doesn't do some, like Fred McMurray doesn't do something bad, but it actually is to where he kind of, he wins the, he wins the double indemnity. He gets the money. That is because he says that point. was like one yeah. of his favorite roles, and he also mm-hmm. liked when he went he went back to the Disney stuff. But then he also did the apartment, which gave him um, yeah. yeah, I think he talk about living vicariously. Yeah. yeah, you're a wholesome guy. You get to play this character who does this terrible stuff, yes. and and as an audience member, you get to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You don't actually have to kill somebody. You can get the experience vicariously mm-hmm. of doing it, and maybe and maybe he learned that he he learned that he could could act. Yeah. Maybe we'll all be safer for having watched this film because we don't need to commit the murders. No, but like, uh, as many people point out, it's, it is the perfect crime. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
Well, I think we've said all we need to say about this one. So you gotta yeah, get watch this a it shot. on um, demand or rent it. Um, again, double indemnity. You gotta check it out. Until next time, maybe you ought to. Bye. Bye.